I want to encourage you, the most important thing that you can do in the, in the weeks to come is to enjoy God, stay in his word. And uh, as you get time, I want you to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and, and understand more and more what Jesus is saying. This is a very important passage in the scriptures and that Jesus is speaking directly to us, directly to his people at this point. Now, if you, if you know the setup for the Nicolay Bible students, you know, he's talking about John the Baptist and, and him saying, you know, he must increase and I must decrease. And that's the mind frame that we want to have this here at the student body. But it, it, at this point in history, I mean, John's arrested. Jesus is picking his followers, the disciples. If things are not really looking up at this point as far as circumstances. There's all kinds of groups. There's, there's these organized religious people in like four different categories. And, and they're up there having their little religious times. And then you've got the, the zealots on the other side trying to fight all them. And, and you've got people confused as to who Jesus actually is. Because he's the one that's supposed to set up this government and save us and do all Jesus has fasted for 40 days and he went through the temptation with Satan. I I just want to set up the idea that these chapters were written, that this Sermon on the Mount was given after a very difficult period where the defining of who we are as believers is going to come through this. Uh, Guys like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or some others considered these three chapters something you should read like every day. They, They just... This is an important foundational truth in Christianity. So as I thought about it, I thought, you know what? I I just want to encourage you to to read these chapters, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, over and over and over again. Get to know it so well. Memorize it if you want. Know what it says. Understand what God is talking about. Meditate on it. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart about how we apply this. Because it's foundationally important in, in very unsettled times. And I don't know that I've ever lived during more unsettled times than we're in right now. So these foundational truths that were true then, as we talked about earlier, anything that's true, we can count on. Methods are going to change, but the stuff Jesus talks about here is the foundational level. If I'm Satan and I want to destroy people, I, I uh, do it on the sly. I don't do it so they know it. I don't walk up to them and say, hi, I'm Satan, I'm going to destroy you. I don't do that. Because we would all say no to that. But it's, uh, now that I'm a, a, a huge hunter, um, more statues, I mean, I could mean fat hunter, but not sure what that meant. The bottom line is I've, I've watched some things on hunting. And I found in Alaska they do this, not, not now, but in history, they, they did this thing where Obviously, they study animals, and they want to know their patterns. And once they get to know their patterns, they're, they're hunting them so that they can eat them. But they're, they're patient. These things take time. They, they basically know where the animal's going to be, which animal they're watching. And then, they, if they want a wolf, they have a very specific thing they used to do. They used to take a, 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 a knife and sharpen it to razor, just razor sharp. And they just dip it in blood and then put it out and freeze it. And then they keep putting layers of blood on that knife. Then they take the knife and they put the handle in the snow and ground. They just let it sit there. And the wolf will come and start licking that thing. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And the more the wolf licks it, the more it tastes blood, not knowing it's its own blood. Till he dies. I thought, that was a dirty trick. Yeah, it is. And they don't care because they're trying to kill the wolf. That's what Satan does to us. When I played football, one of the easiest plays in your offensive lineman is just find out where the defensive guy is going and keep him going there. Why? Because that takes a whole lot less effort than trying to get them to go a direction they're not going. So you just emphasize where they're going. So we used to have plays designed that way. Hand the ball to the running back and wait there for a second until everybody finds where their guy is going and pushes them there. And then there's going to be openings in front of you. Take one. And I've I've thought through the years, that's how Satan works. He loves to get us into a pattern, into a, a place where we don't, rec- don't recognize a danger anymore, where we think we're going somewhere, even helps us go. Go, enjoy. And in the long run, he's trying to destroy us because everything Satan does is evil. He's deceptive. He would like to destroy us. And as I look at you, I want to promise you this. Satan's busy. He wants to destroy you. I know that. Just because God loves you. He wants to destroy you. He can't get to God. There's no way Satan will ever take on God and win. So you're the target. Your choices. It's interesting that the battle all the way through the Bible really involves the, the heart. It doesn't involve the physical stuff. And that's where some of the religious people got it all wrong. They're making all these rules and doing all these things and thinking they were doing right. But the battle is really in the heart. And that's what we have to understand, that the battle is in the heart. I was reading a book. The book is, uh, I'm not sure I recommend it to anyone yet because I haven't finished it. And this guy's a, I, I don't know that he's a believer at all. He actually gave, I, in fact, I would think by these invitations he wouldn't be, but I'm not really sure, so I can't say. But he was invited to give the Harvard uh, speech at their commencement. And so it, it, then he took it and he turned it into a book. And the book is called Dedicated, A Commitment in the Age of Infinite Browsing. Um, and, and his name is Pete, Pete Davis. And uh, this commencement speech, then he turned into this book, and it's very interesting to read what he said. He says in this book, by the way, that some summer camps prove the importance of relationships. He just said that randomly. He said, because people at summer camps have to stop browsing life. They have to look at each other. And they have to interact with each other. And they have to do things that they're no longer doing. So he said, summer camps are still one of those places. And I thought, here's a Harvard guy saying, summer camps are important. He didn't say Christian summer camps. He didn't say anything like that. He just said summer camps in general. But as I was reading him, he pointed out, uh, I'm going to mess up this guy's name, but the Polish philosopher Zygmunt Bauman, so you can look up Zygmunt if you want, uh, he had a great phrase for what I'm talking about. He said, it, he called it liquid modernity, Mo- modern, whatever that word is. We never want to commit to any uh, one identity or place or community. He said, the modern culture, and he's talking to Harvard grads here. He, you're not going to want to commit to a single thing. That's what we do best now. We browse through life. We go through life and, and just browse. We're afraid to actually buy. 
don't know if you've ever been to Woodman's, but it's like that. You know, you need a loaf of bread, and you stand there for four hours looking at the... Why? Because you can't... I'm going to buy one and get taken. You know, this one per ounce is less than that one per ounce, but there's four billion of them to look through. I, I don't know how many people have been on Amazon going through, going, I don't know, is there a better deal? Is there a better deal? Let me go somewhere else. Is there a better deal? Hours later, better deal, better deal. That's what he says is starting to shape the American mind. That's what's shaping us now. The forever browsing mentality, never committing. Well, that's dangerous. He compares it to the people graduating from college are going into a hallway. And as they go into a hallway, there's all these doors that are open. But they don't choose one because if they do, they're out of the hallway. So the doors, they just keep going down and looking in them. They keep looking, but not picking. And this guy from Harvard, the guy that was telling the Harvard graduate, don't do that. He was going through pointing out that everything that's important in life, everything, everything that you admire in life is somebody who is committed to something over the long haul. And he said, through time, we have become a culture that is no longer committed to anything. Wow, I'm thinking, preach it, brother, but it was no message in there as far as Bible. Well, here's a guy who is looking at a bunch of students who are considered at the elite of the elite, telling them, quit looking at life through all these doors and establish yourself and do something every day. Commit yourself every day. Do something right every day and get up every day and do it for 40 years. I'm like, oh, you don't hear that much. Because anyone you admire, and he challenged people, anyone you admire, you go back and you'll know that's what they did. You're not admiring somebody who's 70 years old who went through life in the hallway. You're admiring somebody who went in a room and shut the door. They made decisions. And I thought, that's exactly what's going on in our culture. We have to minister to that. He's right. Summer camps give us that chance to stop. You wonder how important it is for people to put their phones away while they're here. It's important. He goes on at different parts of his book, and he talks about how, how odd it is for people today to sit and to think. Why? Because we're in this infinite browsing mind frame. If I sit there and I'm bored for a second, my phone comes out. Now I've got other people telling me what I'm thinking. We are infinite browsers in life. And nobody's got a conviction about anything. And we want to have purposeful lives in the hallway. It's not happening. He writes this. Meanwhile, our media books, news, entertainment keep getting shorter and shorter. And it's not because we have low attention spans, but because we have a low commitment span. It's interesting. For years as a teacher, I talk about you know, attention span. Yes, not attention, it's commitment. You know, I agree with them. I'm looking at how I read things. Too long. Half the time, Linda hand me something, and I'll look at it, and she goes, that's too long, isn't it? I go, yep. Put it down. It's one letter. Too many words. 
I'm thinking, what has become of me? I, I don't even want to finish a letter at times because it's too long. I don't want to read something that's long. I love it when Linda reads a book and highlights it for me. I just go back and read the highlights. Why do I want to read all those words? I'm part of the problem. I, I grew up in this culture. I'm in the hallway sometimes, and I don't want to go in there. That it's not, a, it's not really an attention span. It's a low, atten- uh, low commitment to, uh, span. But when you look at what we have real affection for, whom we admire, what we respect, and what we remember, it's really the institutions and people who come from the culture of open options. Can the whole Harvard guy saying it's not those guys we even look up to. Why do we spend all this time looking at people and observing people we'll never even look up to? These people influence our everyday life, and we don't want to be like them. So why watch them at all? Said the kinds of people I'm talking about here are rebels. He's talking about the answer, by the way. That's what the book is for, is to try and encourage people to get away, choose a door. You know, that kind of thing. He said, the kind of people I'm talking about here are rebels. They live their lives in defiance of this dominant culture. He, he, he describes now what he's saying. He said, they're citizens. And then he describes it. They feel responsible for what happens in society. They're patriots. They love places where they live and the neighbors who populate those places. They're builders. They turn ideas into reality over the long haul. They're stewards. They keep watch over institutions and communities. They're artisans. They take pride in their craft and their companions. They give time to people. So he described, this is what we should be. And again, this isn't Matthew 5 yet or anything else. We're just talking about a guy talking to Harvard students. But I love the way he's describing the cultural problem because that's where you and I are at. We're in this culture. This is what the problem really is as you look at it. Being committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, being committed to what's right, the idea of right, the long haul of commitment. As I said, Jesus was baptized. He fasted for 40 days, was tempted by Satan. John the Baptist had been arrested. Jesus withdrew in the wilderness. They're withdrawing in the wilderness. We're going to see that uh, those who run from difficult times and run from pain, all they do is run back in the hall. You've got to go through that stuff. There's times when you're right, you're doing everything right. And things fall apart. You know what you do as a response to that? You do everything right tomorrow, again. Yeah, but everything will fall apart. No, what you're committed to is doing right. You're not committed to the outcome necessarily. You're committed to doing right. Because you can't control the outcome in most things. You can't. How many people we know have spent their life eating right and doing things right and they still get sick? How many people have done right by, oh yeah, I should have my retirement account and they're bankrupt? How many, you can do right. There's all kinds of circumstances in life that you don't control and I don't control and will never control. So we can do right and still not get the results we'd like to have. How many people in the Bible were that way? 
all those that followed Jesus as his disciples, one betrayed him and the others were murdered. Oh, John dipped in oil. That must have been rough. Read the Book of Martyrs sometime. Fox Book of Martyrs. Just read it. These people did what was right. See, the commitment in our life, the, the hallway, it, it isn't about circumstance. It's about doing what's right. Just doing right in life. The circumstances in life are going to be there regardless. Like, we don't control us. Job. Didn't he do what was right? Oh, yeah, God said, there's no one like this guy. This guy, he does right. Imagine how many people looking at him going, you do right? This is what right gets? Yes, you know what right gets? Right gets a clear platform to shout out. Clear. He's in the room. He's in that room where he gets, he's in the room where you show God. That's the room he's in. So no matter what happens, he's in that room. Good, bad, ugly, in that room. I've committed to that. Door is shut. No bed, no hallway. I'm in that room. Yeah, but you could get in a real bad situation, Job, where you lose all your family and all your money. I'm in that room. You could get really sick, Job. You could have a miserable life physically. I'm in that room. The door is shut. I'm in that room. What would make us leave the room is the question. Is there a circumstance that would make us open that door and go back out in the hall? I don't know. So the battle begins. Jesus, he's baptized and John the Baptist is arrested. Jesus knows what's going to happen to John. He knows that eventually John's head's going to be taken off because he's going to challenge power. He's in the room. He's listening to his father. That's the room he's in. He came here to represent who God was so that we could understand and glorify God. He came here to demonstrate who God was in the flesh, to die for our sins. He knew that. He was going to do everything right, everything right, and literally the whole world was falling apart around him, and they crucified him. And he did everything right. I often think, especially this time of year, what did Mary think about all this? What could she think? This is her son. This is God's son? He gets treated like this. Oh, yeah. But there was a resurrection. The, the final chapter in all of our lives isn't written yet. Another book I would recommend to you, I, I'm not sure if I recommend this book to you yet. I'm just saying a book I would recommend to you is um, Lee Strobel's latest one on The Case for Heaven. Just interesting. You realize this body, this body that I have is a physical body. That's all it is. The real me lives here. But one day, this is down. Goes back to dirt. 
If you guys around and you see that, realize I'm not there. When I looked at my dad when he died, when I watched, when does dad die? As soon as they were dead. And I didn't see my dad die, I just saw him afterwards. But we saw Linda's dad die, take his last breath. My first thought was, he's not there. Boom, gone. Body, not there anymore. You know how precious it is to know what God says? You know what kind of hope that gives a world that is hopeless because they don't know God? And right now, Matthew, you're in a position where you get to represent the king. You're in that room. Leave the door shut. Represent him. You'll be pained. Love is painful. But he gets to do that. And we get to pray for him that he does that. And he does that well. In all of our lives, we go through those moments. I just want to Start a little bit here on it. Matthew 5, 1 to 3 in the Weiss translation. I decided if I'm going to tell you about Matthew, I'm going to go in a translation you don't normally read. That way it's new, kind of. Weiss translation, if you haven't got it, it's one of my favorite ones to read. It just helps you understand things. It's an expanded translation. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I'm just going to read it. And having seen the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. And when he had seated himself... His pupils came to him, and having opened his mouth, he went to teaching them, saying, Spiritually prosperous are the destitute and helpless in the realm of the Spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's so many interesting things here that grab me. I want to know why every translation is translated, having opened his mouth. It seems that's obvious, that when you speak, you open your mouth. But yet, it's translated that way for some reason. For some reason, we're supposed to know this, why it came out of Jesus' mouth. And then I, I began to think, you know, the most powerful thing in the universe, in the whole universe, is the very word of God. This is the same one that spoke and created the universe. The very word. But it came from an authority. What I think, just like in the Old Testament, it says, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. Look, this is Jesus talking himself. So what Jesus says is important for you to grab because of who he is. I don't know. You could have your own theory about it. I, I wouldn't go to bat on a theory. I'm just saying, for some reason, it's all translated. He opened his mouth. And he went to teaching them. And he, and he said something that's spiritually prosperous. Here's, here's the point from this little verse I want you to think about. It's really hard in our culture to talk to people about the fact that they're, they're depraved. Because everybody's got to be right in whatever they do. So nobody's depraved anymore. But without understanding that you're depraved, if you don't understand the depravity of man, you can never enjoy the grace of God. You can never understand God's mercy if you don't understand your depravity. And what happens to people like us after years? We've gone to church. No one in here is a mass murderer. I don't think. No one in here has done things that everyone looking at. Are you kidding me? You're a terrible person. No one's done that. 
So the challenge for those who are not bad people is to actually be spiritually prosperous by understanding their own depravity, their own separation from God. Because when you are in the position where you understand what your sin has done, what that does, it, it allows you to position yourself to enjoy the mercy and the grace of God. And without enjoying the mercy and the grace of God, you're not in the right room. We talked today about how, how this place has been cared for through the years, but you know, it is God. It isn't us. The reason I have any hope in this world is because of God, not because of Dave. I will never have hope because of my actions. I have hope because of his actions. I will never have hope because of my faithfulness. I have hope because he's faithful. You see, what happens when you begin to see who you really are, you can trust God. Because you realize he's the only one you can't trust. You can't trust yourself. Because you're depraved. Remember, Jesus was talking to groups that were all these religious people, had all these outflowings from them that made them look like they were significantly religious. You had the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, uh, the other two groups. Is it the Nicaeans or the Essenes? There you go. Thank you. I knew there was a Sean in there somewhere. And there's another one. What's the other one? Zealots. Who? Zealots. Well, they were, but they weren't considered it. Uh, they're there too. But you have all these people that are doing these outside actions. Trying to say, look at me, look at me, look at me. And, and Jesus starts with, you know who are the real prosperous people? You know why I love this verse? Because anybody can do it. Anybody. Each one in this room, each of us could do this. We may not be able to be very strong and be a zealot and take a sword and go chop off Nero's head. We, we may not be able to do that. I mean, how many of us think, you know, I'm a nobody in the world. I can't go out there. You're right, you are. But you know what I can do? I can know my own depravity to the point where I enjoy God and I trust him. And I, I, I bask in his mercy and I bask in his grace. You want to read a guy who did that? It's the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was Saul. He was Mr. Religious Guy, persecuting people left and right. And then God says, by the way, I'm God. Quit persecuting me. Wrong, 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 wrong. All the stuff you're doing is wrong. Do you understand what a bum you are, Saul? So I, go, I know, I'm a bum. Good. Now, why don't you write the Bible? Huh? You must have people more qualified. No, no. Nobody's more qualified than those who understand their depravity. If they also have accepted the mercy and the grace of God. Nobody's more qualified at that point. You think there should be these qualifications. Are you kidding? Everybody in life, everybody has made mistakes. Everybody is depraved. Everybody is separated from God. And the most consistent people in life are those who understand that on a regular basis and live in that context. And that's why Jesus says, spiritually prosperous are those who are this way. One of the great things we have to to work on in our lives is not getting to where we're so used to being the good people that we forget the mercy of God and how much we need to bask in it. 
I think I'll stop there, let you guys take a lunch break. And uh, we'll just continue. And I'll keep rambling this afternoon a little bit. And then uh, let you read the rest and, and keep enjoying who God is. But it's not hard to see right now. This afternoon I'll share some headlines I read this morning. It's not hard to see the depravity of man. But I want to make sure we understand that we're the depraved ones as well. So there is a depravity of all men, including us. And in that, we get to enjoy God's mercy. We get to bask in it. I've often said, I, I don't think you need an evangelism class for people who actually are depraved and know they are and come to Christ. Because they're going to act like they're redeemed. I never took a Green Bay Packer course on how to promote the Packers. Because true fans is promoted by being a fan. People who really understand their depravity and enjoy the mercy of God, they act like they enjoy the mercy of God and talk about it. It's a natural thing for them. I think we need to be able to help our culture get to that point where we can call sin, sin again without the constant fight that they're giving us that, oh, people aren't that bad. Yes, we are. We all are. We're all depraved. And that depravity allows us to enjoy mercy. I am extremely important to God, by the way. My depravity doesn't mean I'm not important to him. I am important to him. So much so that in my depravity, he sent his son to die for me. So I'm important, not because he needs me, because he wants me. That's different. And I need to always live in that context. Because that's the room that all of us need to be in. I'm praying we'll let you take a little break here. Well, again, thank you that you uh, have allowed us to pause. We ask that uh, as we read your word, as we are in Matthew 5, 6, 7, that your spirit will continue to just speak to our hearts. That we will understand the things that you want us to understand and respond to you in Jesus' name.